As Kat said, we're starting a new series in Malachi tonight. Um, it's the last book of the New, uh, not the last book of the New Testament, last book of the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew, turn back a page or two pages and uh, you'll be able to find it there. It's a tiny little book, it's only a couple of pages, so it's quite hard to find. Brilliant. Before we delve in, let's pray. Yeah, Lord, we're so grateful that you choose to speak to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that they're your words. Thank you that they're not dead but living. Thank you that as we read them and as we listen to them and as we obey them, that you work them into our hearts and lives. So we ask now, Father, that again, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead would be at work in us now. That he would encourage us, that he would challenge us, that he would spur us on to faith and good deeds. And we pray, Father, for your help now as we come to this book in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If we haven't met before, my name's Dave, and uh, we're going to take the next, f- well, five weeks with a break in between for baptisms, which is in a few weeks' time, to go through this book of Malachi. Um, has anyone, hands up, who's read the book of Malachi before? So we can get a bit of a bearing. Okay, a few people. Um, hands up who would be confident enough to say out loud publicly a fact about Malachi. Put hand up. Okay, good, good. No one. Okay, so, so this is great. This is a new book. Perhaps we've never even read it before. Perhaps we don't really know much about it. This is exciting. We're on a journey. I'm going to be honest with you, because when I chose this book, I thought it was going to be really easy. And uh, as I sat down to study it, it became increasingly clear, I think this is one of the hardest books in the Bible to teach and to preach. Because it tackles some of the grittiest aspects of life. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about predestination, if you know what that is. The idea that God chooses people. We're going to talk about marriage and singleness and divorce. We're going to talk about money and serving and giving. We're going to talk about giving God our best and sacrifice. We're going to talk about God's justice and how he can be fair and right and Good, like there's so many things in here, and uh, I'm not going to lie, some of them make me quite uncomfortable. So as we go through, I hope that you'll be praying along as I'm preaching, that God will be using these truths, that he would be teaching us, that he would be taking our lives, and that he would be planting in his fruits, his gifts, his truth. And it's my prayer that we would come at this with humble hearts. As I've been preparing it, it's really challenging. It's really challenging. Like Kat and I, as we have, we've been kind of processing it and talking it through together. Like we've thought about some changes that we need to make in our decisions and our priorities and the way we approach things. So that's my prayer for us as well. It's a four-part series. There's four chapters. We're going to do a chapter a week-ish. And... The key thing that I think Malachi is all about is this, that God wants us to be free from safe, medium, mediocre Christianity, and he wants to free us to live a life in Jesus that is fully devoted to him. And so if you're you're starting to switch off, just pray that. Pray that God use this to wake up to give you full, warm, deep devotion 
to you. The book of Malachi was probably written in about somewhere in the 5th century BC. People disagree. Malachi is the guy who wrote it. He's the author. His name there, you'll see it in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel, God's people, through Malachi. You'll see there there's a little footnote that takes you to the bottom, which says, Malachi means my messenger. So this is a messenger from God. That's what a prophet is when God speaks through someone, in this case Malachi, to his people to bring encouragement, to bring challenge, to bring truth. And this book was written at a time when when life was really hard for God's people. It's about 80 years or so since they came back from exile. They've been back in the land. They've been busy rebuilding the temple. And yet life is tough for them because there's, there's famine, there's drought, there's disease, there's economic crisis. Their neighbors hate them. There's war. It's not going well for them. Things seem hard and tough. And for them to stand out as one of God's people becomes increasingly difficult for them. And so here God sends them this prophet Malachi to mainly challenge, to challenge his people, but also to encourage. And as we go through, there's, there's six kind of conversations that we get to listen in between God and his people. And it goes something like this. In each of the six conversations, it starts with God making a claim. He says something that is true. The people immediately come back, basically in disagreement, and say, how have you done that? Or, that's not true, or that's not our experience. And then we go on and see God's response. So there's a claim that God makes, there's the people's response or kind of disagreement to it, and then there's God's explanation. And that's the kind of structure that we're going to go through as we, as we see each of these six conversations. What we're going to do today is kind of skip over the first one, um, not because it's particularly challenging or anything like that, but I think the conversation number two in chapter one is going to be much more important for us today. But let me give you a little summary of the first conversation. It's there in verse two of chapter one, where it says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I've turned his hill country into a land and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Probably got loads of questions after reading that. We can chat about them more afterwards, but we don't have time to delve in loads to it. But at its heart is this, that God's love for his people is not based on their performance, but on his promise. So there's this story here of Jacob and Esau they're both as bad as each other in a lot of ways. And yet God chooses one, and he doesn't choose the other. Now that conjures up all sorts of questions, which I'm more than happy to chat about after the service. But here's the key. God's love comes from him choosing his people. So there's an encouragement here, and there's a challenge. And that's really key for us to get. 
God's love is based not on our because that frames everything we're going to see as we go through Malachi. And so as we delve into the second conversation, the way this plays out in forgetting God's love for them is in their half-hearted devotion. When we lose sight of God's love for us, it's really easy for us to slip into this kind of middle ground. When our hearts aren't that warmed by God's love and kindness and generosity to us, it's really easy for us to just kind of float along in the middle. You know, we forget the strong, incredible things that God has done. We forget the extent of our sinfulness and our wanderings. And we live in this kind of middle ground, not with our faith blazing hot and not with it stone cold. Just kind of nowhere in the middle. If you're around for our Revelation series, you will have remembered that that letter to the church in Laodicea where John calls them out for being lukewarm is kind of similar to what's going on in this second conversation. They're neither hot nor cold. They're somewhere in the middle. So let's delve in and let's see what's going on here. This is verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me? says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Do you see there? There's a claim that God makes, a truth that he says, and then the people come back and question it. How is that true? How can we believe that? Right at the start there, there's, there's an accusation made against God, uh, made against the people by God. He says, he says, look, you don't honor me. You don't respect me. You show contempt for my name, he says, treating me as if I'm worthless, as if I'm nothing to you. And yet the people would have remembered the scriptures. They would have known God's immense faithfulness to them in the past, how he'd rescued them time and time and time again, how he provided for them time and time and time again, how he'd loved them based on his promise, not based on their performance. God had been so good to them. He deserves the highest praise. And yet they say, how have you, and yet they say, like, in verse 6, a son honors his father and a slave honors his master. But if God is that figure, then where is the respect that they show? They show contempt for his name. They treat him as if he's worthless, and yet he deserves it all. He deserves the highest praise, and yet they're treating him like nothing. How are they doing it? What's going on? Well, let's carry on in verse 7. It says this. By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. You see, the people are 
taking this central act, the sacrifice in the temple, where blood was spilt to show the forgiveness of sins, this central thing that God had given them, and they'd made it as if they don't care about it. How are they doing that? By offering lame animals, blind animals. They don't care. They're just doing the bare minimum. It's a bit like, was it, was it last week was harvest? Last week was harvest, wasn't it? Or the week before, I can't remember. And in that time, we, we, we celebrate God's good provision for us, right? So God, God is kind to us. In, in lots of ways, we're a bit removed from it in London. Kat and I went to visit a farm a couple of months ago, uh, to, an hour north of here, and we got to drive a combine harvester, and it was the most incredible thing I've ever done in my life. And, uh, and as we went through, the farmer was telling us about the yield and like the yield per hectare, and this year it was a really good year for wheat, what we were harvesting. So he was getting, what was it, about nine or ten ton per hectare, I think, which is evidently really good. And with the current prices of wheat, it was going to be a really good year for him. And, and harvest, the point of it is to say, thank you, God. When the harvest is good, you say, thank you. You provided all that we need. And you say, thank you. And so at church, we have this harvest Sunday, and you bring like your tins and your stuff, and you bring it. And throughout all my life, every year, like the day before harvest, or probably even the morning of harvest, I would go to my kitchen, open my like cupboard, which has all the like stuff in it that you never really use, and go right to the back and pull out the ones that are just like a couple of days out of date, you know, it'll do, and uh, just take a couple of cans and go off to church and pop them up and job done. Until last, last year or a couple of years ago, when I was reading this exact passage, and, and it was such a challenge, because I was like, in that moment, I'm bringing to God my leftovers. I'm bringing him my scraps I'm just rooting around at the back of the cupboard and seeing, oh, I don't need that. It's not beneficial to me. It doesn't cost me anything to give it. And so we've tried, like, I don't know, ramping up our harvest, harvest giving in, in various different ways. But it's mad, isn't it? We, we do that in all sorts of ways, keeping the best for myself and giving God Almighty the scraps, our leftovers, I love the challenge in Romans 12 that's so clear. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Because God has loved us, based on his promise, fully and freely, because he's shown us mercy, the only right response is to give him everything back in return. That's what he deserves, right? And maybe the temptation is, and what the people fall into here, is that they think God doesn't care what they offer him. We have a kind of, a that will do attitude. He's just glad we're around. You know, he's, he's fortunate to have us here tonight, because my time is precious, and yet I give up, an hour and a half, every, well, every other Sunday, let's say, to come. and He's so privileged that I would choose to be a Christian. And of course, he'd delight in whatever, whatever I'd bring him, you know. And yet in doing so, in thinking that, we live in half-hearted faith with 
with no full devotion, just like the leaders of God's people in Malachi. Malachi. He deserves everything we've got. Just think of all that he's done for us. When we've wandered, he's rescued us and brought us back time and time and time again. He's provided for us time and time and time again. He has loved us so deeply and quickly and freely. He deserves everything. He's given everything we have to us in the first place. So a sign of our worship is to bring our best to the table. Our best time. Our best money. Our best actions. What if you don't have much? What if you don't have much money or much time? Or... That's okay. There's, there's this beautiful account that Jesus tells of a poor widow in Luke 21. And the rich are there, and they're there quite publicly and openly, putting in their vast sums of money into the offering box in the temple, where the widow comes along, and she puts in just two coins. And Jesus commends the woman above the others because she gave out of her poverty all that she had. And that's something that we're going to see as we go through this book of Malachi, that God wants to teach us in this book that he is less concerned with our outward actions, primarily, and more concerned with our heart. He's less concerned with what we do on the outside and the the shiny edge that we have, and he cares about our motives, our character, why we're doing what we're doing. And so to offer God our best, we don't have to wait until we've got our lives all set up, until we've got a certain amount of time or money. You know, when we get to that life stage, then I'll be fully devoted because I'll have more time on my hands. When I start earning some money, then I'll give to God because I'll have more money in my pockets. We don't have to wait We do it regardless, with a grateful heart, because God has given us everything. He's chosen to love us, and this is our grateful act of worship. And the language in chapter 1 and going into chapter 2 is quite strong. God despises the people's half-hearted worship. He would rather you be on fire for him or far off, not in some blurry middle ground that doesn't really make a difference or mean anything. It's like neutral Christianity, neither alive enough to serve him with everything you've got, nor to engage in blatant disobedience over that side. And so what does God do? What does he, what does he say in response? Verse 10, oh, that one of you would shut up the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. This is clear, isn't it? It's hard. God says, don't waste my time with your lack of devotion. It's worthless to him. Do you hear what he says here? He'd rather the temple doors are shut than his people offer 
dead sacrifices half-heartedly. Just think about that. You can run a successful church on the outside with great worship services attended by thousands of people with a thriving youth ministry and kids ministry and loads of students with small groups, with outreach work, with community support, with a huge staff team, with thousands of pounds, budgets. You can have all of that in a church and yet if there's no devotion and the heart is missing, God would rather shut up those doors than it keep functioning as it does. Why? Because that's not what he wants for his people. God cares about the heart, not just our external actions. He's not so concerned about the busyness and the activity, but rather our internal holiness. And I think this is a challenge for us at St. James, isn't it? I think St. James has a reputation for being a busy church, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have a staff team and thousands of pounds of budgets and a church with lots of people coming. Those can be brilliant things where God is working and God's people are thriving. But it can be dangerous when there's so much activity on the outside and yet our hearts are nowhere. God says he'd rather shut up the doors of the church. It's scary, isn't it? We can have all sorts of programs, all sorts of activities. But when we lose sight of the reason why we do these things and who it is we serve, we stray into dangerous territory. Because God tells us what he deserves in verse 11. He says, he says my name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations says the Lord Almighty if you're bored with worship or going through the motions serving the Lord something's not right if on the outside of your Christian life it looks great and shiny but on the inside there's nothing different Something's not right. And perhaps we've maybe lost sight of the glory and majesty and the love of God. That his name would be famed around the world. So here's the challenge that I think God wants us to hear today. That, it's, that being a Christian is not easy all the time, but that there's a cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. It takes sacrifice to give God your best, to say, God, you are my everything, and I'm going to give you all I've got. I'm going to have full devotion to you. That's not going to be easy. It's not just going to happen by itself. It's going to take hard work and determination. It's going to take sacrifice. Perhaps for some of us, we think we can have everything in the world plus Christianity on the side. 
You think, like, I don't have to give up anything to worship God in all its fullness. No, God says there's a cost. You might have to give something up to give him your best. And so maybe, I remember meeting a guy once who, who'd just been offered the most incredible promotion at work, and yet he said no to it, even though it meant more money, more power, more control, more seniority. He said no to it because he was a small group leader, and he knew that if he took that promotion, he was going to have to take too, too much time in his work, and he would have no time to run a small group. So he said no. Did that cost him? Yeah. Probably him and his family. Less money. But he said that because his heart wanted what was above all else. He wanted to honor God, didn't he? Maybe for, for us to give God the best that we have, it means not pressing the snooze button 17 times in the morning. But waking up. Getting up early, maybe. Reading the scriptures. Delighting in the Lord. Setting aside our best time of the day. Not our leftovers. Not our dregs. It's costly. You might have a half an hour less sleep each night. For some of us, that might be, that might be a mad idea. Maybe you're at school and you're studying, studying for your exams and you're like, maybe it will cost you one grade less because you say, on Sunday, I'm going to go to church. In fact, on Sunday, I'm going to have a day off. I'm going to honor God. I'm not going to work on a Sunday. And I'm going to go to a Bible study in the middle of the week. Why? Because your heart is there. And it might mean that you get one grade less. Radical, isn't it? And maybe there's some parents here tonight that need to hear that for their children as well in what you want for your children. Perhaps we need to watch one less hour's Netflix so that we can get on our knees and pray. Perhaps we need to offer to serve at church in a ministry that I don't want to serve in. I don't get anything out of it, but I'm going to do it because that's where my heart is. And perhaps it's for those of us who say, when, when asked, how are you, and you say, busy, I'm busy, but good, busy. Perhaps for us, and perhaps in my world, this is the biggest challenge is the cost of giving our time to God. We're very happy, sometimes, for some of us, we're very happy to give our finances and our money, let other people do it, but with our time, sometimes we keep it to ourselves. Now, I want to say all of that with a huge caveat in that I know, I look around here and I see brothers and sisters who give generously, who serve generously, who have great devotion, and I want to encourage you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for giving God your best. He loves it. He loves it. Keep doing it. Don't give up when it's hard, when you struggle. Keep at it. But for some of us, maybe we need to hear that challenge, that giving God our best takes sacrifice. Jesus shares this warning in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, Jesus says, there's a possibility that we can be busy on the outside and doing religious things for God, and yet on the inside, there's nothing. And yet, the solution to half-hearted worship is not to try harder. Rather, the solution is to become more captivated with God himself. He tells us the kind of attitude that he wants from his people, respect and honor for his name. Speak in truth, walking in righteousness. So if you want full devotion in your heart, if you don't want to be like the people here who are offering lame and diseased animals on the table, if you don't want to be like me in my harvest situation, get your gaze on God. And ultimately get your gaze on Jesus, who gave his best for your worst. If you, want to, if you want to use your time in the best possible way and give it to God, get your gaze on Jesus, who gave up his best for your worst. If you want to give God the best of your money and your resources and all that you earn, going above and beyond, get your gaze on Jesus who gave his best for your worst. And in your quiet, internal devotion to God, if you want to give him your best, as you search the scriptures, as you spend time in prayer, as you worship him in so many ways, as you reach out to the world around you, get your gaze on Jesus. Why? Because he gave you his best and took on himself your worst. Because I can stand here and tell you, read your Bible more, give more, pray more, serve more, whatever. But if you don't have Christ at the center of your gaze, it will all be for nothing. The people here had lost sight of God's love for them. That's what the problem is. And so let us be a people who, when we come to worship, don't share the words of the people later on in Malachi, in verse 13. They say, what a burden. What a burden to serve God. What a burden to come before him and give him our best. Let's not be like that. Rather, let us come before God in full devotion, resting and trusting in Jesus alone, and say, what a joy to give you my best. That can only come from God himself. No courage you can muster up. What a joy. Let's take a minute and let's spend some time. Maybe you want to close your eyes and just process this for yourself. Talk to God, your Father. Tell him what you're thinking, how you're feeling. And then I'll pray in a few minutes' time.
Father, these truths are really hard. And I look at my life and I'm like, I'm sure we're all feeling a bit like that. Lord, so please, please be our help. Like, we can't do this on our own. We try, but we fail. So please be our help. Please get our gaze on Jesus. And please, Father, may we, may we at the gathering be a radical people who give you our best when it costs us. And may that bring intrigue. Why would you want to do that? Please help us, Father. Yeah, we really struggle with this. And maybe it's just me. Maybe everyone here is perfect. But Father, we really need your spirit to work in us, to convict us, to challenge us, to change us. Please work in us, we pray. And may St. James be known not for its external activity only, Please, Father, may we be deeply rooted in wholehearted devotion. May we be those who joyfully come and give you our best, even when it's hard. We pray trusting in the name of Jesus.